Welcome to the Down the Rabbi Hole podcast. This is episode three, where we will continue our discussion of Rav David Zvi Hoffman. In the first two episodes, we used his introduction to Malamad Lahoyal as a jumping-off point to discuss. various aspects of how he thought, what he wrote, what he, what he was involved in. And we're going to continue doing that now. And now is really when we get into, in this third episode, we're going to get into his function as a leader, and we're going to get into what was a major turning point in his life. A major turning point in his life. He writes at the, the end of the first page of his Hakdama to Malamed Lahoil in the, in the original printing. May Az Asher Mori Rabbi Hagon Rabbeinu Azriel Hildesheimer Zetzal Tash Kocho. When Rav Azriel Hildesheimer, his Rebbe, and who also was his predecessor as the Rav Israel Hildesheimer was the founder and the Rosh Yeshiva rector of the rabbinical seminary in Berlin that became known as his, by his name, the Rabbiner, the Hildesheimer Rabbiner Seminar, right? named after its founder, Rav Israel Hildesheimer. He died in 1899, Rav Hildesheimer, and a few years before his death, he grew weak. Now, Rav Hoffman was a student of Rav Hildesheimer when he was very young, in the yeshiva in Eisenstadt, which we discussed in episode one. Rav Hildesheimer in the early, uh, I believe in the 1850s, moved from Eisenstadt to Berlin, which is part of a broader movement in the sense that there was, in Hungary, there were Rabbanim that you would, that would be considered today more modern, more worldly Rabbanim who also had uh, college degrees, secular education. Hungary, famously, the Jewish community in Hungary split in the late 1860s, but already before that, there was a polarization that there was one segment of Hungarian Judaism became Orthodox, right? They called themselves Orthodox before there was a German Orthodoxy. Uh, this was more or less what today would be called. Uh, you know, there were different varieties of it, but it was a more um, you know there were different groups within it. There were some more extreme. There was a mainstream. There was a more uh, liberal leaning, or if Israel Hildesheimer was considered part of the liberal leaning um, wing of orthodoxy. Um, but that wing of orthodoxy in Hungary, it, for the most part, in the 1850s and the 1860s, it died out, and many of many of the greatest scholars that it produced ended up moving to Germany, where there was a demand for 
Rabbanim who were Talmidei Chachamim, but also spoke good German and had college degrees, even doctorates. So Radat Hoffman was one of many who traveled that route. I'm not including Rav Israel Hildesheimer in that group because he was originally from Germany. He founded a yeshiva in Hungary. The yeshiva, he ended up closing up shop in Hungary and moving to Berlin, where he saw, where he saw much more success. His, hunger, his yeshiva in Hungary was controversial. It met with opposition of some of the leading gedolim of Hungary in his day, including the Sofer, including Maram Sheikh, including Rav Yehuda Asad. Um, in addition to Rav David C. Hoffman, you also have Rav Yosef and Rav Nehemia Nobel, were Hungarians. Uh, Rav Mordechai, or Rav Marcus Horowitz, was Hungarian. The Breuer family, famous Breuer family, the son-in-law and the grandsons of Rav Hirsch, were Hungarian. They were from the city of Papa. This was, you know, these the... the educated Hungarian more I would say more embracing of Western and German culture Rabbanim who were still Orthodox ended up moving from Hungary to Germany including Radat Hoffman so when Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer set up his rabbinical school in Berlin he invited his Talmud. I'm sorry, this must have been in the it must have been in the 1860s or early 1870s, maybe 1871 maybe. He when he when he set that up, he invited his student, Rav David Svi Hoffman, to be one of its teachers. Rav David Svi Hoffman taught Shulchan Aruch and Gemara, meaning he was a he was a, he also taught Chumash. And his commentaries on Chumash originated as shiurim that he gave, classes that he gave in the in the rabbinical school. But he was the one who was teaching halacha. He was teaching Shulchan Aruch. But Rav Israel Hildesheimer, he was the head. He was the figurehead. He was the acknowledged Talmud Chacham, Gadol. When Rav Israel Hildesheimer was nearing the end of his life, now Rav Israel Hildesheimer had sons, and he had sons who were involved in the yeshiva, and he had sons who were Talmidei Chachamim. When Rav Israel Hildesheimer was getting old, and getting weak, and getting sick, this is what Radat Hoffman writes. He says, May Oz asher mori v'rabi hagon rabbeinu Israel Hildesheimer zaltzal tashkocho la'amod al mishmarto. He could no longer stand at his at his station. He commanded me, he ordered me to, to take his place. And to give the drushas Now Shabbos Shuvah and Shabbos Hagadol those are without a doubt those are the two times that the Rav of the community speaks. Nobody else speaks then. Those are the slots that are reserved for the acknowledged Rav of the community. So if Rav, if Rav Azriel Hildesheimer saying to Rav David C. Hoffman, you give the drushes at this time, you give those two drushes, Shabbos Agadol and Shabbos Shuvah, and furthermore, the Hub in 
And he, in his great humility, he sat there in the base medrash while I was, he stood there in the base medrash while I was giving the drasha. And he nodded with his head. So what he's describing here, what Radat is describing here, is a passing of the torch. Unquestionably, there is no question that there was a plan of succession. Rav Israel Hildesheimer saw, recognized that he was getting older, that he was getting weaker, that he, was, that he did not have much longer to live. And he passed the torch on to Rav David C. Hoffman. Rav David C. Hoffman at this time was in his early to mid-50s. He was born in 1843. We're talking here uh, about the late 1890s. Now, we can date this because in the Machberet, in the notebook, the Pinkas, the Kuntris, that we discussed in the first episode, it's in chronological order, and here Rav David Hoffman actually puts down dates. He says, this is the drusha that I gave in, and it was in the Orthodox community in Berlin. It was not in the Rabbiner Seminar, but it was in the Orthodox, yeah, I called it, it was called Adas Yisrael, the Orthodox, the separatist Orthodox community in Berlin, the old community in Berlin. He gave these drushas before, you know, as he explains here, before the death of Rav Ezreal Hildesheimer. So there's a clear passing of the torch. But not only in this regard. If you look at that Machberet, in the early years, you know, he, remember, he receives the Machberet as a gift for his 48th birthday in 1890, in late 1891. The first entries in that Machberet are, for the most part, chidushim. Sometimes they're philological chidushim, sometimes they're more classic pilpulish chidushim, sometimes they're shiurim that he gave. Sometimes, rarely, they're, they're halachic, they're tshuvas. Once you hit the late 1890s, once you get to about 1897 or so, the balance starts to shift. More and more of his entries in this notebook are halachic, are tshuvas, tshuvas that would eventually appear in Malamed Lahoyal. What this means is that, now obviously there are principles like, you know, a Rebbe shouldn't, a Talmud shouldn't paskin in front of his Rebbe, and there's discussions as to exactly what that means. Historically, there are very few poskim that waited until their Rebbein passed away to start publishing. In this, in this very generation, in the generation of Rav David Tzvi Hoffman, the, the Talmud Muvak of the Avni Nezer uh, wrote his chidushim, published his chidushim, uh, called Chilkas Yoav, while his Rebbe was still alive, and there are even instances where the Avne Nezer, not by name, but he goes and he writes against the Chalkas of what his own Talmud wrote. And so his Talmud, the Talmud, he was the Rav of a city, he was the Rav in Kinsk, and 
he was paskening, even though his, he got a heter hora from his Rebbe, he got smicha, you could paskin, he could, you know, he could paskin. Maybe not in front of his Rebbe, maybe not in his Rebbe's presence, but if he was being asked questions, he could he could answer the questions. And Ruv David Hoffman, there's no question that, you know, he, he did write tshuvas before Rav Azriel Hildesheimer passed away, and even before this uh, symbolic passing of the torch, but he doesn't really start to write tshuvas in earnest. His real, the period in which he's writing tshuvas really only starts at the tail end of Rav Azriel Hildesheimer's life. Which means, and this is somewhat rare, and I would say even very rare, if we're talking about the Toldos, Toldos Aposkin, right, in the history of Shailus Uchuvos, he was, he did not start Paskling Halacha in earnest. He did not become a Posik until he was in his 50s. If you think about all of, if you think about the greatest Poskim, first of all, some of the greatest ones didn't even make it to the age of 50. Right, the Ramah, the Shah, did not make it to the age of 50. Ravion the Lansofer didn't make it to the age of 50. And in addition to that, you know, you see Rav Moshe Feinstein was writing his tshuvas when he was in his 20s or, his, or around the age of 30. Right? The earliest tshuvas, you know, in our own generation, the earliest tshuvas that we have from Rav Asher Weiss, he was in his 30s. The Note of Yehuda published his first Sefer Shut, the Note of Yehuda, Madura Tinyana, he was very young, um, meaning relatively young in his 40s, and he had already been writing for some time. Bechasam Sofa, you go through and you see that, for the most part, people that are going to become Meshivim, people that are going to become great Poskin, they're, they're on their way when they're young. I uh, had a conversation at a chasana not long ago with Rav Rafal Willig. And I would test my hypothesis a little bit, and I said to him, tell me, how old was your father when he started, his father is Rav Mordechai Willig, how old was your father when he started Paschaling Shilas? When he really started fielding questions and answering Shilas from, you know, from all kinds of people, and he is one of the best known and most respected postgame in America today. How old was he? And he said he was very young. So I said, 20s, 30s? He says, yeah, 30s the latest. Probably early 30s. Early, young. Rav David Hoffman doesn't become a postgame until he's in his mid to late 50s. It's almost unprecedented. I can't think of another postgame who was... I almost, I don't, I don't know if he was. I wouldn't say that he was reluctant to Paskin Shilas, but he didn't see himself as a posek until very, until relatively late in life, until the last uh, 25 years of his life or so, maybe less. But what happened? He was, you know, until he was 55 years old, until he was. He was a huge Talmud And he was teaching Halacha in... He was the teacher of Halacha in the rabbinical school in in Germany. Which means that all of the German Rabbanim that had been graduated from the seminary and had gone out to all the different communities throughout Germany, they were his Talmudim. 
they knew him, they knew that he was a great Talmud Chacham. And so once it became impossible to ask their questions to Rav Azriel Hildesheimer, once Rav Azriel Hildesheimer was too weak, and then when Rav Azriel Hildesheimer passed away, they started asking their questions to Rav Zavitzvi Hoffman. He, and he, and he started answering. And he became a posik in his 50s. And the amazing thing about this is that you can see his learning curve. You can see how he's learning the tools of the trade of posik, of, of being a posik. What do I mean by that? And it's really an, an, an amazing thing. And this is a key part of the article that, uh, that I co-wrote with Dr. Tova Ganzel, which I mentioned in the first episode. For a long time, people thought there hasn't been a lot written on, there has not been a lot written on Rav David Hoffman's halacha. What has been written on, on, on Rav David Hoffman's halacha and his psak halacha the assumption is you can't really construct any sort of timeline as to, of his development and see how things changed and developed because there are no dates in his tshuvas. And it's true. There are very few dates. If you look, if you open up the printed Sefer, Malamed Lahoel, there are very, very few dates. You will not find very many dates. Few tshuvas have dates. Most don't. It's famous tshuva on organs as in the kind you play. I'm not talking about like organ donation, like kidneys and hearts and livers. I'm talking about an organ, like the kind you play in shul, you know, whether or not uh, somebody who graduated from his seminary could serve in a shul where there's an organ. He is, is a famous tshuva that he wrote. And he wrote that uh, at the end of, towards the end of Rav Israel Hildesheimer's life in 1897. In that one, he, uh, he has a date. It's dated. For, most part, there, for the most part, there's no dates there's no places in Malamed Lahoil in the printed version. But, as I mentioned, there's this Machberet. And in this Machberet, in this notebook, this in which he recorded all of his chuvas, is written chronologically. And he has a few dozen places where there are dates, but based on those few dozen dates, you can narrow down any individual chuva, right? So if you know if chuva two hundred is between Chuva 190, which has a date, and Chuva 215, which has a date, right? Then you can know that Chuva 200 is within that narrow window. And sometimes you can refine it further. And another thing that there is is that there are. When Romadovsky Hoffman wrote a Chuva, he wrote down his Chuva in his notebook, and he also sent a copy to whoever asked him the question. And sometimes we have the copy that he sent to the questioner. So. Some of these were published by Mark Shapiro in the 1990s. Some of these haven't been published. The ones that are that have parallels in Malamed Lahoyal actually haven't been published. But through them, you can sometimes reconstruct the process. Because first of all, you can see when the tshuva was originally written. And you can see when Rav David Hoffman goes back to the same tshuvas. You have three or four different times where he's dealing with the same tshuvas. Or he's dealing with the same issue and his positions evolve. And you can see the final product because he went back and he wrote notes in his original machberet, in his original pinkas. So sometimes you'll have that the finished product, what appears in Malamed Lahoil, the printed edition, is his what, what he originally wrote in his machberet plus 
whatever additions he added over the years. And sometimes he added 10 years after he originally wrote them. There are, there are even places where in the last year of his life, he's continuing, you can see, he's quoting sources. He's quoting, you know, Kitve 8. He's quoting journals that appeared in the last year of his life, which means that he was constantly, until the last year of his life, he was going back and he was updating his own halachic positions and sometimes reversing his halachic positions, sometimes Lakula and sometimes Lachumra, until the last year of his life. Now, this is an entire... This is a, an aspect of his personality. This is an aspect of his derech hapsak, which has been completely unknown because everybody was just looking at the printed Malamad Lahoil and wasn't looking at these different letters and machbarot, the, 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 the machbarot, the manuscript that he had, and seeing, you know, trying to put things in order, which is something that we did, and you can really see how... You can really see how he works and how he continues. He was never satisfied, and as new things came to light, he was adding to them. And you also see other things. And this is what I mean by a learning curve. He's asked a question about, uh, let's say, uh, you know, he was asked a question about contraception. So he answered what he answered, quoting the halachic sources, saying that, can a woman use contraception if she's in danger? She used this kind of contra contraception if becoming pregnant would be dangerous for her. And he answers, he's, in that case, he was Mekel. And we have the original tshuva that he wrote. We have the letter that he wrote in which he was Mekel, in which he says, it's mutter. And then in his machberet, after he writes that it's mutter, he writes about a discussion that he had with a doctor in Berlin, a doctor who was a Talmud Chacham, Rabbi Dr. Bieberfeld. And he writes a whole thing about what Rabbi Bieberfeld suggested and why he disagrees with Rabbi Bieberfeld. And then he comes back to it again and he writes in his margins and he writes in between the lines and he writes how he ends up being choserbo from his original thing, not just because, because, because of another tshuva that he found that goes against one of the first tshuvas and, and makes a convincing argument against the source that he was relying on in his original heter. So you have a process here by not only is he rethinking the, his own psak as new things come to light, but he's also, the first time he writes a tshuva, he didn't think to discuss it with the doctor. Like, what are the health ramifications for this, for this woman if she uses a method of contraception that's not, you know, that doesn't eliminate all risk of becoming pregnant? He doesn't address that in his first tshuva. It's only later that he has a discussion about this with a doctor. Another example of this is in one tshuva, if you look in the printed edition of Malamed Lahoil, he gives a heter for... Uh, it's not important. I mean, it's, uh, he gives a heter for... Um, you know, a certain kind of bandage in the ear or a certain kind of like... like a, um, a cotton ball in the ear that prevents the risk of uh, that prevents the risk of, of an ear infection is not considered a chatzitza. If you look in the Lamad Lahoil, he'll say it's not considered a chatzitza, and at the end he says, yeah, and take a look at Ksav Ace, a rabbinic journal called Hapeles in year one, and that was actually published in Germany in 1901, and there indeed are like five different chuvas, all of which are meikil on this issue. Five different Jews from different Rabbanim from around the world, like from Russia and Hungary and the United States even. Fine. If you look at the original Tshuva, which we have, 
the first chuba that Radat Hoffman wrote on this, he doesn't say anything about this rabbinic journal. And he even says, I haven't seen anyone who discusses this. So even though I'm Mekel, I'm Matir, I don't want you to rely on my on my heter unless you find two other poskim, two other Moreho who agree with me. Fine. Which means that at that point he hadn't looked at Hapeles, because if had he looked at Hapeles, he would have known that this issue has been discussed. Now it happens to be that the Maharsham already had a chuva on it that was published, but that's neither fine. If he didn't see the Maharsham, Maharsham was hot off the press. <clears throat> he hadn't seen it, fine. Hapeles, which he later referred to, I mean, he added that note later on. He hadn't seen yet at that point, because had he seen Hapeles, he wouldn't have had to say, find two other postkin, because he would have seen that there were five other postkin that agree with him. Now, here's the thing. Hapeles, not only... This chuva that he wrote on, on this issue, he wrote it in 1905. It's dated. We have the letter. It's in an archive in the National Library of Israel. We have the letter. In that, it's dated to 1905. That's the first chuva he wrote on it. And he said, you need to find two other postkin that agree with me. And he doesn't mention Hapeles. Now, Hapeles, as I mentioned, that issue of Hapeles, in which there are all these five chuvas on this issue, came out in 1901. Now, here's the kicker. In that same issue of Hapeles, there's an article which contains part of Mechilda de Rashbi, the edition that Rodovitz Tzvi Hoffman himself wrote. Rodovitz Tzvi Hoffman published his, his edition of Mechilta de Rashbi in a serial format, meaning only part, every part of it, he part, published part every month over the course of a couple of years <coughs> in Hapeles. And if you take the Ksav Ace Hapeles, if you take that journal, 1901, and you start looking through it, you'll see that the first article in every issue is Rodovitzvi Hoffman's edition of Mechilta de Rashbi. And then later on, in the same issue, there are in the same issue there are halachic discussions. There are discussions of all kinds of things. Rovdovitsky Hoffman it came out in Berlin. He was publishing in it. He knew of Hapeles. He probably had Hapeles either in his home or in his in his base medrash. He was publishing in Hapeles. But there was an article in Hapeles, there were five chubas in Hapeles that five years later he didn't know of. Even though he had written in that very same issue of Hapeles. So I would compare this to somebody subscribes to tradition. They're a very... They're, they're a, 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 a rav, a pulpit rabbi, a teacher. They don't... Because they're not involved in halacha, in psak halacha, they don't read Rabbi Bleich's articles. Rabbi Bleich's survey of contemporary postgame on this and that, that doesn't interest them. They skip that part. They read the stuff on philosophy. They read the stuff on parshanut. They read the stuff on... Uh, the, they read the book reviews. But the stuff on... That stuff, the stuff on... on 
survey of contemporary halachic literature, it doesn't interest me. So that was Radatz Hoffman as late as 1901. He was getting Hapelas, he was writing for Hapelas. But the halachic sections in Hapelas, it didn't interest him. He didn't read them. It didn't register with him. It sat on his shelf unexplored. At a certain point, right, so, and so he says, I'm, I'm Makel in this, and it makes sense to be Makel, but I haven't seen anybody that wrote on this. So you need to find two other poskim that agree with me. It was only later, once he's, once he caught up, once he started learning the tools, and it's not that he didn't, it's not that he wasn't a talchal, he gave the heter, he knew how to, he knew how to paskin, he paskin. But he wasn't reading, and he wasn't consuming the things that a lot of postgames would be consuming in order to be just familiar with what was being said and what was being poskined elsewhere, around, in the veldt. So this is what I mean by learning curve. He was, in his mid-50s, he hadn't cultivated the skills. He hadn't cultivated the... He, he didn't see himself as a posik, as a posik halacha. It was only after Rav Azriel Hildesheimer passed away in 1899 that he began to see, he began to get those questions, and he began to... And it took time. He began to see himself more and more as a posik halacha, and he began to develop the tools that would make psak halacha, that would streamline it for him, that would make it easier for him, the tools that every posik would use. <clears throat> That's what I mean by he's a late bloomer, that he's a, and that he's and that he had a learning curve. And it's amazing to see it because, you know. We think of ourselves like, oh yeah, somebody is, uh, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's what you'll often hear people say. And here's one of our gadol, one of our, one of our postkin, who's reinventing himself. He wasn't completely reinventing himself. He was still dealing with the questions that he was dealing, that he had been dealing with before. He was still writing on, you know, his, he was still writing his commentaries on Chumash. And he was still writing on the Mishnah and Midrash Chazal. And he was still the Rosh Hashiva of the Berlin Seminary. And he was taking on more things like he was becoming active in Aguda, etc. He was definitely, you know, he didn't become only a posek. But he became a posek. He changed. He developed those new, a new way of being, a new way of engaging when he was, when he was, what we would consider, and, and what he would consider, an old man. And it's kind of amazing to see, you know, this kind of Odyanuvun Beseva, that he's reinventing himself and, and learning new things, learning new ways, taking on new roles at such an advanced age. I believe that we've gone a little over time this time. Uh, this has been part three of Rav David C. Hoffman. I believe that the next one, part four, will be the final, will be the final episode on Rav David Svi Hoffman. So stay tuned for that. This has been Ellie Fisher, the Down the Rabbi Hole podcast. <laughs>